hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. The first order for most cities, especially developing country cities, is to plan, provide and protect your public spaces. As governments start to think about post-pandemic recovery plans, we take a look at our cities and what's being done to mitigate the effect of a world brought to a standstill. We hear about a new report by the World Bank on how to build more inclusive cities in the years to come and chat about the lessons we'll take from the past few months to create healthier communities and neighbourhoods. All that coming up in the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, one of the key issues at the top of the agenda for pandemic recovery plans is how to ensure our cities are more inclusive and sustainable in the future. To do that, it's important to look beyond density and think of our urban environments in terms of economic geography to help contain the spread of COVID-19. This is the argument made in a new report by the World Bank, and I'm pleased to say that Shamik Lal, who's the global lead for territorial and spatial development at the World Bank and the author of this report, joins me now. Shamik, thank you for joining us on The Urbanist. The first thing I wanted to ask you about is economic geography. Can you explain to our listeners what this is and why it's so important when we start thinking about how our cities will survive and hopefully thrive again in the future? For the past few months a lot of the discussion on cities and how they will manage the pandemic has focused on their physical geographies. You may have seen this in the news, in policy debates, people are talking about the downsides of physical density. And physical density measured in terms of number of people on any given square kilometer of land. But That's a very narrow version of what a city and its density looks like. What you really want to focus on is a concept of economic density on how the same piece of land is topped up with infrastructure, with basic services and investments that allow people to have more floor space. So the distinction between the physical setting And the economic investments that go on a piece of land is the distinction I would like to highlight is the fundamental economic geography principle. There's, of course, if you were to look more broadly, the idea of economic geography is not limited to cities. The same ideas about economic geography apply to issues about migration, issues about trade. But I think today's conversation we will focus much more about economic density. And that is the distinction between physical geography and economic geography. So just so we can park the physical density question, in your your report, you highlight some interesting examples, one of which is in New York, for example, where you have very, very dense neighbourhoods in Manhattan, for example, where actually the coronavirus infection rate is pretty low and other areas where it's less dense, but actually the virus has spread quicker. Could you just explain that little part so we can leave it to one side as we then dive in more to the question of economic geography? To me, 
when I was looking at images of the coronavirus spread in cities like New York, there was an outsized share of attention of pictures that grasp viewers worldwide about lines of people lined outside Elmer's Hospital in Corona in New York. And there was a lot of debate saying it's the density of these places that's making them really vulnerable. So we decided to give it a little closer look. And we looked carefully at densities around one particular transit line, the Line 7 in New York City. On one hand, it's got working class neighborhoods in Queens. On the other hand, it's got pretty rich neighborhoods in Chelsea. And you would think that densities in the Queens would be far higher than densities in Chelsea. And that would sort of play into this whole storytelling about densities really at the heart of the spread of the coronavirus. But when you look at the numbers that we put together, I was looking at these numbers and we demonstrated that in fact, densities in Queens were actually quite moderate. And that's where you had what I call crowding, where it's difficult for people to stay apart, difficult for them to access services, they have limited floor space at home, they're multi-generational families. And here, the risk of contagion is far higher than say in very high dense places like Chelsea, where you have a lot of floor space around you, you have a lot of amenities that you can have brought to you, and you have incomes that can tidy over the short duration of a lockdown. So that was the point we tried to make. So when we come to economic questions, I saw in your report also that you cite, for example, Kinshasa, where 84% of people who live in the city are at risk of infection from the virus because of economic questions. So could you explain how something could be done to help these people? So I know it's not going to be in this immediate moment, but if we are going to face future pandemics. So you talked there about floor space, building height is important. So when people come to build again or to oversee neighbourhoods which are structured and not informal, what can civic authorities in a place like Kinshasa begin to do to build in a little bit of an insurance policy for the future? So, Andrew, what we do in the piece is we outline what authorities can do now during the pandemic and what are things they can do as they look further down the road. And in Kinshasa, what's really important is to note that the government is using the spatial allocation or the geographic distribution of structures and infrastructure and the sort of methodology we develop to identify where is it that we need to prioritize cash transfer support. So even during the pandemic, how do we kind of help out the most vulnerable? But as we look further out, I think there are five broad ideas that city authorities may want to think about. The first one is about public space. And I saw that you have covered similar issues in your previous podcast. And the idea that in a lot of developing country cities, people living in crowded neighborhoods face a double challenge. They do not have floor space or housing adequately at home but they do not have public space outside that will allow them to kind of benefit from some of the urban amenities. So if you've been to a city like Mumbai, 
and you go around Marine Drive at two in the morning, you'll see all these young families basically sitting looking towards the Arabian Sea because that's an amenity they have and they can use it because they don't have enough space at home. So the first order for most cities, especially developing country cities, is to plan, provide, and protect your public spaces. It's very difficult to make a case immediately that we need to increase the stock of housing because the demand for housing and the ability of city and other developers to provide housing rises with the economic development. But public space is something a lot of credible and competent authorities can do. It's very difficult over the program in recent years. We've spoken to authorities again and again or campaigners who say, actually, in fast developing cities, land rights are often complicated. There's a desire to just build and build. It sounds like a good idea, but it's very difficult, isn't it, for many city authorities to protect public realm, to keep parks safe, because they do just get encroached on very quickly by rapacious developers. Andrew, that's a good question. And it comes down to the efforts we put in building the capabilities of city governments to, in fact, protect public spaces. I was looking at a lot of issues in Africa where, A, there's little clarity on land rights in a city like Kampala, so it's difficult to say who manages what land. But also, because regulations are difficult to enforce, because there are few people who are trained in civic authorities, so it becomes very challenging to protect these places. But a good place to start could be to think about bringing in nature-based solutions, sort of like they've done in Mumbai, where there's a nature reserve called Goregao, and that's at the outskirts of the city. And right now it's being used as a makeshift quarantine facility. So there are ways to do it. And tell me, so the second idea on your checklist, I know, is to do with changing the regulations to provide more floor space. This is, again, a longer term thing. And again, it's trickier in informal settlements where people are more at risk at the moment. But again, there is a beginning here for all civic authorities to start engaging in that conversation with how places get erected, correct? That is correct, Andrew. And even though one may argue that living in the informal sector is not a choice, right? If you live in a city where the minimum lot size, say in the formal sector, is 400 square meters, which poor person can put together the capital to acquire 400 square meters of land? All they can do is go into the informal sector. Unless we get land regulations, land use planning, they'll be more compatible with incomes and economic development levels we are going to exacerbate vulnerabilities. Do you know that if you think about cities like Philadelphia, when they were formed, the lot size in Philadelphia was 32 square meters, not 400 square meters that are in many developing country cities. Feeding into all of these things, it feels that some of the other points on your checklist, they connect in a way. So we've touched on the need to secure land and property rights and to look at how you use urban infrastructure. But one of the other interesting things you talk about, which I think needs to be explained again to bring it to life, is this notion for blue skies, that cleaner airs make cities more livable and productive, 
and that supports better capital, better prosperity. People come into the economy in more interesting ways. They hopefully are able to escape poverty, for example. So explain to us why clean air is also something that we should be thinking about. If there's one thing I'm really looking forward to is for folks in developing country cities to be striving for blue skies. And the reason I say that, if you were to look at development models of many cities, it's been a model where cities grow, they get jobs, they get industry, they get polluted, and later they start cleaning up. Is there an opportunity now to think about growing while growing cleaner? And to me, when in a lot of cities, young people had never seen blue skies, right? And now is an opportunity, now that they see blue skies, their preferences may change. And what we find in a lot of work we are doing at the World Bank is that cities become much more productive when they have cleaner air. Because if you're a firm or a business who wants to attract high quality workers to a city and your air in the city is dirty, you'd have to give a lot of combat pay to your workers to be able to come and live there. And that in a lot of developing country cities, raises the cost of production, makes it really difficult for these cities to start producing goods and services they can trade globally. Now, if we have an opportunity to get clean air and blue skies, the amenity value of clean air will attract a lot more young, talented people to our cities. This will make our cities competitive. This will make wages much more efficient and make the cities productive overall. To me, what cities like Cairo are doing during the pandemic, thinking about expanding their public transit system and doubling it up and figuring out ways to get people to convert their cars to run on natural gas, these are really great examples that we should look carefully at. So for the World Bank, you see this as a time when city leaders should be investing clearly and spending to make sure that we have these amenities for everybody. And I wondered, at a more basic level, there's some shocking figures in this report, one of which you think of South Africa as as one of the wealthier countries on the continent. But you point out that only 44% of people have access to running water in their house. And only 61% of people have access to a flushing toilet. So when we tell people to wash their hands all the time, to be clean all the time, to be aware of hygiene issues the impediment for regular people in South Africa is already almost impossible to do the things that that seem the most basic ways of fighting this virus. So again, when you're looking as a huge, important financial institution, are you saying these all should be on the checklist of investment? We should be thinking about mobility, public space, sanitation, and trying to engage with people at that level? What I think is that cities in Africa and also South Asia, they have a major investment deficit. Right now, we have estimated that cities in developing countries have a $5 trillion a year investment deficit, which includes water sanitation, transportation, basic housing. The challenge is that we need to do all of these investments now. And here, if I were to prioritize, I would say access to water and sanitation would be definitely a high priority because that directly impacts lives and also livelihoods. 
These were to be complemented by transportation investments that help you make a labor market more connected in a city, connect people to where the jobs are. But broadly, in addition to the investments, there's also the need to strengthen institutional capabilities of local governments so they can really start delivering these public services, but also improve or enhance the remit of these local governments so they can take more proactive steps themselves to, in fact, improve the lives of the citizens. Shomik Lau, Global Lead for Territorial and Spatial Development at the World Bank. Thank you for joining us. This is The Urbanist. Now, we've heard about the importance of creating sustainable cities, but what about healthier ones? The way we imagine the cities and the neighbourhoods of the future needs to take this into account. So I wanted to hear more about some of the lessons planners and designers should take from this period and how lockdown has highlighted just how important it is to create good, happy, healthier places for us to live in. To discuss this and more, I was joined by Andrew Raven, who's the Director of Master Planning and Urban Design at Savills here in the UK. Let's have a listen. For a long time, we've been promoting healthy neighbourhoods through what's pretty standard good practice urbanism. There's the two elements of physical health, which is related to physical activity and mental health. And there's a lot of strong evidence that shows if you've got walkable blocks, so permeable development blocks, that's directly related to the amount of physical activity that people have. Higher density is the same. Public transport density, that helps improve physical activity. And parks and green spaces, and not necessarily large parks, but small spaces within half kilometre areas that get people outside. And those elements are also, of course, really helpful for mental health. Green spaces being available helps recovery from illness and disease and also provides space for thinking. And we know that the larger green spaces in suburbia do help but the lower densities don't. I think there's quite a bit of evidence now emerging in the USA of suburban developments that are actually harming the number of social ties that people have, which has an impact on their mental robustness. And are there projects that you've worked on in recent years where you feel that they've made good strides, both literally and metaphorically, to get people out there walking and being healthier? Is there an example here in the UK that you could talk about? A lot of the schemes that you're seeing around Cambridge, Northwest Cambridge, Nine Elms, they're really strong, walkable neighbourhoods with what we're starting to call gentle density. So three to five, three to six storey homes and apartments that provide a density that gives you a lot of ability to mix the uses and get people out of their homes walking to local facilities. And that kind of approach is emerging in a lot of the new garden villages. Many of those have some interesting challenges because they're remotely located. So I think there's been a strong focus more recently on making sure that you have the ability to mix uses in new developments and they're not just dormitory towns, which the garden villages, well in Garden City, for instance, were when they were originally created. We know that, you know, for example, the pipeline of projects from buying a piece of land, to getting planning consent, to getting started. That's a chain process which is not going to be deviated, I wouldn't imagine, just by the past few months. Maybe things will be slowed down at some of those stages. The planning rules and regulations, yes, are going to be eased in some countries to allow 
maybe a bit more redevelopment in city cores and for things to happen quicker and faster to give jobs to builders. And we know, as you said, you know, that there are these kind of social strictures. You know, we know that younger people have wanted to be in areas where they have access to more entertainment, perhaps because they're getting married later, they've got a bit more money, they spend a bit more on their apartments, even in those neighbourhoods. So those things all feel were pretty fixed until we came into 2020. Do you think any of those are really going to be blown out the water? Or do you think that actually, after the, the initial lockdown panic and, and a bit of an economic wobble, that we will continue much as before. Because maybe two or three months ago when we spoke to people, they were like, the world will be completely different. But actually now I begin to speak to people, they're like, yeah, maybe it'll be completely different or maybe it'll be exactly the same, but with a kind of few tweaks here and there. I think the changes that have happened due to COVID-19 have actually just been an acceleration of what was already happening. So I think they will. I mean, Setting all the negatives aside, I think there is a massive opportunity to embed some of the changes that have happened. You know, you've probably seen, like many, the pictures of air pollution across the world and how those have massively improved. And much of that is because people are only traveling locally or they're walking or cycling to where they need to get to. And that brings massive benefits to health, but also to the way things operate, I think, the way towns and cities operate. So I'm hoping that actually some of the changes that we've made will be embedded. And the surveys seem to be saying that. There seems to be a little bit of a reticence for people to get back on public transport. And it would be a disaster if people started commuting by car to the levels that they currently do, but not using public transport. Much better that we try and embed the new modes of travel that people have adopted and, you know, new modes of working. I think now the choice seems to be, can I do this from home? Can I work from home? Can I do it online first before traveling to do something? It's good to get together, but I think if we can embed some of the reduction in movements, that's going to be beneficial for everyone. Now, if people are going to have to be running companies from home, as you said, you've got colleagues who've been perched in hallways trying to take a Zoom call. Do you think that that part of how we think about home will change for the developers you're talking to, these volume builders, will they begin to think that work and home are going to be much more merged in the future and that maybe, if not a whole office, you may need a place to work from, that the facilities such as you know high-speed broadband are going to be vital to any development going forwards? Yeah, well, working backwards from those, and broadband is a key issue for working from home. And it's something we're raising a lot in conversations with developers and councils, because if there's the ability for people to work from home, the costs for upgrades to junctions, for instance, can be quite substantial. If those road junctions don't need to be upgraded because traffic levels are much lower and people can use broadband instead of having to travel to work because they don't have that option, actually financially that works out better as well. We've spoken to friends and colleagues here who have got maybe three people in their apartment. Now, great when everyone's going out, having a dinner in the evening or being social. But when three people are trying to work from a home throughout an entire day, it's claustrophobic. It's annoying. Houses aren't designed so that you you can have three Zoom calls going at one time. I wonder whether you feel that actually people will begin to look at the home as a better mix of home and work environment. Well, I think they are already. I know some of the volume builders have been re-looking at their floor plans and how those work. And that's certainly been the feedback we've had from some of the architects that we deal with across London. 
Mikhail Reach were on a webinar that I sat on the other day, reviewing their award-winning scheme at Goldsmith Street and asking residents, that's a high-density scheme, but residents are quite close to each other. And so they have some social interaction, but they're separated. They're reviewing how those floor plans work. And most of those that we're speaking to are seeing that the demand is to be able to close off those open plan spaces, as you say, into a number of smaller spaces. We all need to shut our children out at some point, particularly when they're running around the house and you're trying to have a meeting with 20 people online. So, yeah, I think there will be a move towards that. How well that will embed itself and for how long will be interesting to see. But I think internal floor plans will be updated quite quickly over the next six months. So finally, Andrew, I guess push and pull. There's some interesting kind of intersections here. You know, people wanting not to be too close to people, but wanting to be close enough so that they don't have to walk two miles to get to the local shop you know wanting access to public transport but still at this moment cautious about using public transport but in the end it sounds like you're reasonably positive that good things will come out of this time yeah i am i am i think what we've seen in terms of the transport changes has been a positive impact and i think it's shown the planning system that it can respond quickly when it needs to you know the numbers of street schemes that have been happening not just across London, Oxford, Cambridge and the UK, but, you know, all across the world. Streets have been changed quite rapidly to cater for more walking and cycling. And it shows the system can react quickly. And I just hope that those changes can be embedded so that we can make some gains off what's happened in the last three to four months. Andrew Raven from Savills, thank you very much for joining us. Well, it was interesting to hear from Andrew Raven, giving a very UK perspective, but I feel that's one that echoes around the world how cities are beginning to think what really needs to change and actually what can kind of stay the same. And it was also interesting to hear him say that these social trends are really what informs building, design, the future of our cities. And those things have not been destroyed by the pandemics. People still want to come together, they want to have fun. They want to know that there's a place where they can go get a drink and hopefully in the future dive into a nightclub and have a dance and maybe meet somebody. All those things that attach you to a place. Those things may be halted in some places, but it doesn't feel like they will not come back. We know that many of our cities have been hit by wars and illness and all sorts of disasters in the past. And they have within their soul, as it were, a kind of resilience that comes to the fore when it's needed and places bounce back. We've talked here many times about London, whether that's during the Second World War when we experienced huge bombing here in the city, the city phoenix-like rose again. We've had economic deprivation, the city bounced back. And now with the pandemic, you know, many people have been concerned that there's going to be a flight from London and many of our great cities as people look to the countryside as a place to allow them to live safer, cleaner lives and, and not worry if a lockdown happens because they'll have chickens in their garden to tend to. I've got a feeling that you know we will see some changes and I hope some are forced through by consumer demand. One of the key things is this notion of having a little bit of outdoor space to see a bit of greenery, to be able to tend just a few plants is good for people's mental health. 
and that ability to open the doors during lockdown. I think many people found a huge release, even if they only had a balcony. So there's a tiny example of what we need to do to development, whether that's adding them on actually as retrofits to apartments or putting that into the planning stage. I think it also needs to be a sense that, as we heard, that services are not far removed from where you live. So when people ask for planning permission to put up new neighbourhoods, what are the public transport links? Is there going to be a place where the community can come together? Is there going to be good retail and shopping? So all these are small things and things that should have been thought about anyway. But you just hope that actually these will be some of the smaller nudges that are pushed upon developers and city planners as we look to the future. So it's been interesting to go through the ups and downs with our contributors and our listeners over recent months. And even though there are huge, huge challenges ahead, it feels that we're in a moment where I have a little bit more hope that the city will come back, all of our cities will come back, and perhaps in a better and more interesting way too. But that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Colotta Rabello and by David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Chromio with Something Good. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Something good.